The text before us, uh, the sermon is entitled, uh, The Church as Jesus in the World. And this is really the place where we see the ministry of Christ being translated into the ultimate church that will bring the gospel to the ends of the world. We have the uh, promise of this back in Genesis 12, 3, but it is here that we have a text which is only found in Luke's gospel of Jesus sending out the 70 or 72, we'll get back to that, uh, two of him to each place that he has called them to go. And Luke has very carefully prepared us for this particular moment in his gospel, which he alone gives to us. It begins here, kind of that outward spiral from, from Galilee in the north to Palestine to the Greco-Roman world to Europe to North Africa, eventually uh, all the way to the seat of the empire, all the way across the, uh, to, to Syria, then across the Silk Route to the Far East, and then, of course, to Sub-Saharan Africa, the New World, and to what we now call Latin America. All of that actually begins in this passage. When Jesus sent out 70 of his disciples who go out to the first Gentile areas. And the real key, the real gospel moment is actually found in the unexpected place, verse 9. Eat whatever is put before you. Now, isn't that a great gospel verse? <laughs> Eat whatever is put before you. You're going into, you know, Gentile areas. They don't share the Jewish sensibilities regarding dietary restrictions. Don't be bothered with all of that. Something new is breaking in. Eat whatever is put before you. This becomes the basis, by the way, of the great missionary prayer that we have prayed myself many times. Lord, where you lead me, I will follow. What you feed me, I will swallow. This is a biblical basis for that. But Luke is very burdened by helping us to see the long trajectory. That's what Luke, that's why this is there. All the synoptics have, including Luke in the previous chapter, have the uh, Christ sending out the 12 on a Galilean mission. The only Luke gives us the 70, 72 mission to the Gentile group. Only Luke gives us the book of Acts. You know, Luke is not, it's not enough for Luke to give us the resurrection. He wants to show what happens because of the resurrection. He wants to know where is all this going? This great redemptive mark, the cross resurrection, all the ripples go both directions. And Luke wants to give us a little clue into the great trajectory of which we are now been summoned and are a part. Luke, of course, is the one that gives us the, the last spoken words of Jesus in his public ministry, if you want to call it that, his earthly ministry. Acts 1.8, just before the ascension, where he says to us that we're to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That phrase, that, that's almost an iconic phrase for us. That's the phrase that we saw in the text earlier that was read. That's Isaiah's language. Remember in Isaiah 49, you know, it is too small a thing. This is speaking of the Messiah. It's too small a thing. For you to be my servant, to restore those the tribes of Jacob, bring back those of Israel I have kept. That was their greatest hope. Come back from exile, be restored. It's too small a vision. I will also make you a light to the nations that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the vision he's connecting with, that Christ connects with 
X1A connects with, ultimately we're all connected with. In fact, if you go to the Septuagint and look at the Greek of, of Isaiah 6, it's exactly the same as Acts 1-8, that phrase. This is the great phrase of the trajectory to the ends of the earth. We still use that even today. And I think at some point it must have dawned on me that, oh my goodness, here I was, I was a missions professor in my previous life. Oh my goodness, missions has nothing to do with the task which the church does. That's what everyone seems to think. It took me years to break out of that mentality. Of course, we have things that we are called to do. But missions ultimately is not tasks which we do, uh, things that we accomplish for him, even, frankly, uh, texts that we obey. Though it's never less than any of that. Ultimately, it's about what he is doing in the world. Mission is about what God is accomplishing, what he's unfolding, and he summons us to be a part of it. That's the great truth of all of this. This is all initiated by him into the world. The Father is the providential goal and source of the mission of God. The Son is the, the redemptive embodiment of the whole mission of God. The Holy Spirit is the empowering presence of the mission of God. This is his work in the world, the Trinitarian overflow of which we're called to be a part. And everything in this text points to that. Even the, uh, even the textual variation here points to it. You know, we should never be embarrassed by textual variations. This is actually is a great gift to us. Because here, uh, the ESV was read, said he sends out 70. The NIV says 72. And this, this discrepancy goes throughout various translations. Did he send out 70 or 72? Could they not, not quite count it right? Did two show up late? You know, how do you resolve these things? This is not a problem. The, the 70 is as significant to Christ, uh, this formation, as the 12 was significant in all the synoptics and the, with the Galilean mission. 70 is the number of the nations. And it comes from Genesis chapter 10. If you go to Genesis chapter 10, yes, I have actually done this. Go and count through all the names of the nations of the world. It comes to 70, if you're in the Hebrew. In the Septuagint, 72. And so it actually, even the textual variation shows that they understood the 70 was connected to that text. This is not a randomly chosen number. He'd been quite happy if there were 75 or 80 or 65, whatever. The point is, this number is symbolic of the trajectory. This is about the nations of the world. In the Jewish tradition, Mishnah always said 70 is a number of the world, the nations of the world. And so this is part of what's going out here. He's sending out the, the, the apostles you know, kind of symbolically, frankly, to the world. Now, granted, they're only going to go to, and there's, you know, the debate whether it's two or three, but probably only two people groups other than themselves will they actually go out and reach. Okay, now, there's 24,000 people groups in the world, but this is the first little step. You see, this is the step that we are now pacing and trajectory with where we are today. And they take that first step, and even, I love the way it actually is phrased, he sends out to every town and every place. This is, almost can echo at some point every nation, every tribe, every language. But at this point, every town. They're, just, they're making little small steps here to bring out into the world to ultimately fulfill Genesis 12.3, uh, in your seed all nations will be blessed. 
So this text is preparatory, but it's headed that way. Now, when I was, um, uh, I told you the story, I think some months ago when I got ordained. I didn't tell you the other part of the story. The first part of the story was I got there without my robe. And so I was told I couldn't be ordained without a robe. I was three hours from my home. Uh, I thought my whole ordination was now in ashes because I didn't have a robe. I did get ordained in an acolyte robe. Um, I looked like a salamander, you know, like squeezed into this little thing, but I did get ordained, and apparently it took. But the other part, which I've not shared with you, is this little part here. I was given a card that is entitled, Succession of Your Ordination. I'm sure many of you have ordained. You must have gotten this card, too. Okay. When I got this card, I looked at it, and I was, I was shocked. Because this is what it says. I'll, I'll read you, like, the chain of ordination. Thomas Koch, I won't give you all the dates, but Thomas Koch lays hands on Francis Asbury. Thanks be to God. Okay, Thomas Koch ordains Francis Asbury, who ordains William McKendry, who ordained Hubbard Cavana, who ordained Elijah Haas, who ordained Constance Harrell, who ordained Joel McDavid, who ordained Timothy Tennant. I'm six degrees of separation from Francis Asbury. <laughs> All right, now, that, now the, whole, the, the thing that's so interesting about this is, like, why was this so important to give this to us? Like, why does somebody work all this out and you have, it's like being given a genealogy. Like, this is your, your ordination genealogy. When I read this, I thought, oh, my goodness, where is the Protestant message in that? Because you remember, in the Protestant Reformation, they had this debate because everybody had a very carefully worked out ordination map like this. It goes back to Peter himself. If you go to Rome, they have it in stone there. We'll discuss the historicity of that later. <laughs> but they have it all there. And you got those little cards too. In the Reformation, a big fight about this. We actually had a family fight on this point. Because in the Reformation, of course, this whole chain was broken. Even in our world, the Methodist world, the, the Asbury link here is a very interesting one, isn't it? You know, lay person on Thursday, deacon on Friday, elder on Saturday, bishop on Sunday. Wow. That was really getting the whole thing going. But the Reformation debated this point and says, you know, well, you know, how important is this laying on of hands that goes back, in their case, to Peter, in our case, Asbury? And the Reformers made an observation and a conclusion that we should never forget, though I thank God for this. I'm not against this. It's wonderful. But I, I want to make the better point. Was that you're in, you know, what makes apostolic succession? What is, the, what is the real heart of apostolic succession? Is it because somebody laid hands on somebody, who laid hands on somebody, laid hands on somebody, eventually hit your head? Is that the real essence of it? And, of course, they, they didn't have that succession. The Reformation broke that. They're starting new churches and finally, somebody had the courage to actually say what everybody in this room knows to be true. That you're only in apostolic succession if you teach and preach what the apostles taught. Apostolic succession is not bound up in who lays hands on who. Ultimately, it's about our faithfulness to God's word. And so if you are preaching what the apostles preached and taught, then you are in apostolic succession, 
And if you don't, you're not. I don't care who laid hands on you. This is what's actually unfolding here. Christ is appointing. He sends out all these wonderful sending verbs that come out to us through this. And in fact, that's what happened. The gospel indeed came forth. It went forth. From this point, it goes out to, as Prabhu shared yesterday, to those two those unnamed disciples from Cyprus and Cyrene who preached the gospel to Greeks, telling them the good news of the Lord Jesus, Acts eleven twenty, And then the church of Antioch is born. That becomes the sending church of the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, was not doing evangelistic campaigns, but doing church planting initiatives, planting churches over the Greco-Roman world. That grows, that develops. Eventually, by the 4th century, this church is persecuted to the point of, of ravish, being ravishly persecuted. You have all the martyrdom of Perpetua and Justin Martyr and many others. And finally, by the 4th century, the Roman Empire's back is broken. And Christianity becomes the faith of the empire. Amazing. And it can just unfold and the gospel spreads to the you know, barbarian territories. And eventually when the, the Goths and the Visigoths and the Vandals and all those groups invade, they, they sack Rome, but they made very good Christians. The Christians made sure of that. They were better Christians than the Romans had ever been. And now the empire flourishes, the, the, or the, the church flourishes. You have the gospel going forward from there into the, well, North Africa. You have the St. Augustine at the time of the fall. You have the wonderful Eastern church, the gifts that came to us through the Cappadocian fathers. The church continues to spread, and these great Celtic saints begin to spread the gospel to the far of the, reach of the empire, like Aden and Columba and St. Patrick, who brought the gospel to a place that were pretty difficult like Scotland and Ireland, tough spots. But the gospel spread. It was mean like going down the whole Silk Route mainly, uh, and get all the way to, to China. And remarkably, do you know that the gospel, when the, when the resurrection happens, the church is going forth? Do you know that the gospel got to China only 35 years after it got to Britain? The whole, if you look at the Allopens mission to China, to the the imperial courts of China, and you look at the Augustine of Canterbury's mission to, uh, to the Angles, it's only 35 years apart. That's how rapidly and explosively the gospel went out. Even by the 7th century, when former Christian lands fell, and the, the, the Holy Land, North Africa, all these Christian centers fell to Islam, you couldn't put the gospel out. Boniface is you know, preaching the gospel in what's today Germany, Cyril and Methodius are putting the gospel into the Slavic tongue. Uh, Vladimir is braving the mighty steps of Russia. And even the darkest days of the, of the Crusades, when the church was so misguided, trying to understand what was happening, don't forget there were people like Raymond Lull, who is preaching the gospel in the heart of the Islamic empire during the Seventh Crusade, preaching he was known as the apostle of love in an age of hate and eventually laid his life down for the gospel. Eventually, the heart of the gospel was recaptured by the European church in the Reformation. And in due course of time, it gave birth to the wonderful Moravian movement, these amazing missionaries streaming out from the estate of Nicholas von Zinzendorf, and eventually the rise of mission societies that produced great leader men and women like William Carey and Adam Judson and Hudson Taylor and 
C.T. Studd and Amy Carmichael and Lottie Moon and Gladys Aylward and many more than you could possibly count. And C.T. Studd, I love C.T. Studd. He was the, I don't know, one of the greatest, he was the greatest athlete of his day. He was a major cricketer. He had made one of the key uh, uh, shots in cricket that actually propelled them to their victory. He got an audience of the Queen, most famous sportsman of his day, and in 25 years old became an inheritor of an enormous wealth. He gave it all away, all his money he gave away. He left his sporting career and he goes and becomes a missionary in the depths of Africa. He's once asked many years later why he had done that. And I love what he said. He said, some wish to live within the sound of church and steeple bell, but I want to set up a rescue shop one yard from hell. Now that's C.T. Studd, one of millions of that time frame that went out, did amazing work. The missionary graveyard became the now the source of one of the most dynamic churches in the world today in the sub-Saharan Africa. The China, they called the early workers foreign devils, but the point is the gospel took root in China. And today, one of the fastest growing churches in the world. And this way, the gospel spread all over the world. And from the remote islands of early church planting in the Pacific Islands to the breathtaking new church ministry more recent years in the mountains of Nepal, this is God's story unfolding. From the Jesuit witness in the imperial courts to China, to David Livingston's journeys through the heart of Africa, this is God's story. From Wicca Bible translators working in tribal jungles of Papua New Guinea, to those dedicated tent makers who are working in some of the great sprawling cities of the Muslim world like Cairo and Jakarta uh, and Damascus, Istanbul, this is God's story. From English classes being taught to immigrants here in North America, the wonderful immigrant community that's coming here, to the fiery preaching on the streets of Sao Paulo or Brazil, this is God's unfolding story. From indigenous church planters planting the gospel in the North Indian Ganges Plain, to Asian workers planting the church in Mongolia today, this is God's story. From big evangelistic campaigns from Billy Graham in North America to Luis Palau in Latin America or Samen Kambungu in Africa or, or Bak Singh in India, all the way to some young Russian woman who, 22 years old, who bows down on her knees in a filthy apartment in Russia in some concrete building with nothing there but the provenient grace of God and invites Jesus into her heart. This is God's story. You see, only eternity will actually tell the story. All we know is the trajectory. We know the end, where John himself has already seen men and women from every tribe and tongue and language before the throne. That's the trajectory. And we get to write a chapter in this story. And as long as we don't forget that it's his story, he lets us write a chapter in it. It's his unfolding story, and he invites us and summons us to be a part of that. One thing about uh, India, yesterday probably mentioned Thomas Coke. I'm going back to the other Coke, Coca-Cola, the real Coke. I grew up in Atlanta. Atlanta's the home of Coca-Cola. 
Uh, there, my mother, uh, I was breastfed on Coke. Um, in, in Atlanta, there are many curse words that uh, are used. The most important one is P-E-P-S-I. You don't use that word in Atlanta. So for me to arrive as a missionary in India and discover in the 80s that there is no Coca-Cola sold, that sold there is a deep crisis. I was like, oh my goodness, you can't buy a Coke? So in the 90s, 91, Coke got back into India. And I don't know, I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall in some boardroom in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, the famous smoke-filled boardroom, where someone said, oh my goodness, India just changed their economic policy. We have a potential one billion new Coke drinkers. And someone got out and made, I'm sure, a great speech and said, you know, go into all the world and sell Coke to every creature. <laughs> he who believes and drinks shall have Coke. He who does not will get a Pepsi. <laughs> and they went out, and I saw them. They, they, they appeared in India, and suddenly Coca-Cola signs were everywhere. And you could buy Coke in every village, every hamlet. Coke was everywhere now. They reached every people group of India in 10 years. They did it. I'll never forget being in a village in northern India. And I walked this village, and one of our Indian colleagues from NTC said to me, Dr. Tennant, uh, this village is so remote. Uh, no one has ever seen a white face in this village before. By that time, this little child ran out from the bush. And I admit, he only had a little T-shirt on, nothing else on. He had a little T-shirt on. It was a red T-shirt. It says, Coke is the real thing. <laughs> I was in India during monsoon season one year, and it was absolutely, we were in a very distant place. It was pelting rain, like only a monsoon rain can do. And Shivraj is here. He can tell you what a monsoon rain looks like. This is not raining cats and dogs. This is raining, you know, cows and sheep. This is heavy rain. You can't see 10 feet in front of your face. Pouring down rain. I looked up at the side of this mountain. This is an area, mountain. We're trying to try to bring the gospel to distant areas over these mountains, at the Himalaya, the foothills of the Himalaya Mountains. This Garwaldi district of, of North India. And I saw this man on the side of the mountain, trudging up the mountain with these huge crates on his back, all bent over in the pouring rain, the mud. This is a path that wide on a huge mountainside, trudging to the mud around these switchbacks, going across the mountain, distant village. I said to uh, Babu, the, the man with me, I said, who in the world is that man? What is he doing? And he looked, oh, I know who he is. He's the Coke man. <laughs> bringing cases of Coke over the mountain to distant villages in North India. And the only reason Coke does this, and I don't blame them for it, this is their, their work, this is their mission statement, but the only reason Coke in Atlanta, Georgia, and wherever all their base does that is for the love of money. They're out there in profit, revenue streams, that, that's their world. And I thought, here's Coca-Cola, who in a matter of 10 years uh, launched a campaign to bring Coca-Cola to every people group in India and did it. For the love of money, how much more so should we pray and sacrifice 
and, and give and work and whatever it's required to bring the gospel to every people group for the love of Christ. That's the trajectory that's being called for here in this text. That's what Jesus calls us to. Because someday we will be in that great multitude with John that he saw a multitude that no one could count. Men and women from every tribe and tongue and language before the throne and before the Lamb. This is the trajectory God has called us to. And may we be a part and see ourselves as summoned to God's great mission in the world. Thanks be to God. Amen.